Welcome back to our second podcast produced by the Australasian Society for Intellectual Disabilities. We're very excited to bring to you a variety of speakers from our seminar held in Melbourne. Today we're talking about putting rights into practices, political citizenship with people with intellectual disabilities. I'd like to introduce you to Sophia Tipping. She is a PhD student at the Living with Disability Research Centre at La Trobe University. She takes a human rights approach to exploring the representation of people with an intellectual disability in the public sphere. I'm going to give a little bit of background about the idea of political citizenship, what it means, why it's important for people with intellectual disability, and what the research says about one part of it voting in democratic elections. To start us off, let's think about the concept of political citizenship. Citizenship can be defined simply as the rights and responsibilities that come with being a citizen. Political citizenship relates to democracy. It's about participation in democratic processes. Here in Australia, we live in a democracy of a certain kind. At its most fundamental, democracy means rule by the people, or that citizens have some power and control over shaping the society we live in. But democracy can be understood very differently from different theoretical perspectives. So participation by citizens in democratic processes can take very different forms. What counts as participation in democratic processes where political citizenship is exercised? I won't go through all the different theories and what they mean for democratic processes and participation. But I'll flag a couple that I've done some thinking about and reading about. In Australia, individuals vote for candidates to represent their interests in government, or they can themselves run for political office. These acts are at the core of democracy and stem from a liberal democratic tradition. And this tradition has been criticised. It includes only minimal direct participation and it assumes that everyone is free and equal to participate and there is a level playing field. Rather than taking steps to ensure everyone has equal access to more direct participation. So certain people have greater access to the direct opportunities to shape society than others. Other models say individual choice or consumption for example, of services counts as participation in democratic processes that shape broader arrangements. I think the NDIS is an example of this. And this idea of democracy comes from a neoliberal tradition. However, it has been criticised as only offering very thin democratic rights and opportunity for only minimal influence for the vast majority. So, for example, Ordinary citizens don't get to decide what the choices are. They only get to choose from what's available. But participation can also be more direct. And other models, other theories have offered more direct models. Citizens can start their own organisations or social movements, can take local direct action like going on strike or protesting to shift policy or impact broader social change. These types of grassroots organisations put people with lived experience or those traditionally excluded or disadvantaged in society at the centre. And these have been associated with social movements like the feminist movement and the disability rights movement. And many of these ideas come from the participatory model of democracy. 
So in Australia, there's a mix of these different kinds and there's also a number of other models that we don't have time to go into. So with these diverse ideas of democracy in mind, where does political citizenship happen and what, what does it involve? We've touched on a couple. It can involve voting in elections, it can involve running for office, it can involve contacting your local member and voicing your views. Arguably, it can happen in a marketplace through political consumption. It happens in governments, perhaps through involvement on advisory boards or committees, through community consultations, town hall meetings, through giving evidence and inquiries. It can happen in international governance. We've recently seen the first person with an intellectual disability, Robert Martin, be elected to sit on the United Nations Committee to monitor the Convention for Rights of People with Disability. It also happens in civil society or the non-government, not-for-profit sector. And this can be through less direct political exercise, like sitting on a governance board or volunteering. It can be through more formal acts like involvement in a membership-based organisation or a peak body. It can happen outside of the formal structures as well, through activism, involvement in social movements, through civil disobedience, lots of different ways. So when we're thinking about making political citizenship accessible for people with intellectual disability, this means making this whole scope of activities and spaces accessible. So what about people with intellectual disability? All this background I've just gone over is useful in understanding where, how and why political citizenship happens. However, the theory that informs it hasn't really considered people with intellectual disability much. So what does it mean for people with intellectual disability? A lot of research shows the enormous individual benefit for people with intellectual disability who exercise political citizenship. It can be argued that as a group that have been traditionally excluded from political processes and who are high users of social services, People with intellectual disability have a heightened stake in the outcomes of many of these processes and I should say are still excluded. It could also be argued that it is more important for people with intellectual disability to be represented in political forums than many other groups who are widely represented because of this historical exclusion. This type of participation can also benefit the outcomes of policy and social arrangements. People with intellectual disability hold an expertise that is not held by other players in the policy making process, for example. So it's a vital perspective to consider and include if effective policy and programs are going to be constructed. Participation itself can lead to long-term and gradual change. There's an argument that greater visibility, presence and inclusion of people with intellectual disability in these kinds of political processes has the power to shift some barriers like attitudes of people without intellectual disability. There's also an important point to be made here. Changes must be made to the way things are done to make these spaces and forums for political citizenship to accessible and ensure appropriate supports are there. And I think at the centre of all of this are human rights and the right of people with intellectual disability 
to political citizenship has been enshrined in the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability. So now, another way to understand political citizenship is to look at the applied research that's been done in this area. And by applied research, I mean research that's done in the field through talking to or observing people on the ground where services are provided or where participation happens. Today I'm going to focus on the research that's been done on voting in democratic elections in relation to people with intellectual disability. And I'll take you through what this body of knowledge tells us. But I think the first thing to note is that I found no applied research of this kind related to the Australian context. So there's a big gap there, big gap in knowledge. The research that is out there from other geographic contexts indicates that people with intellectual disability vote less often than the general population and less often than other people with disabilities. There is an indication in a number of studies that people with intellectual disability are keen to vote and are keen to influence decisions that impact people with disability. The research points to a number of factors that support voting by people with intellectual disability. Having a political knowledge or interest was found to support voting by people with intellectual disability. If people were oriented to the voting process, for example, through having past experience, they had an increased likelihood of voting. Similarly, getting access to information and education on how to vote and about relevant issues supported voting. And this included training on making voting related decisions, receiving support from family or support staff was also valuable. And this support could come in the form of encouragement, discussing voting, being directed to information, as well as more practical forms like transportation to the polling booth on election day. Social networks and the people that surrounded people with intellectual disability were another key factor related to voting. Research found that the wide, people with wider social networks or social networks that included people who were interested in voting or thought it important were more likely to vote. But there were also barriers to voting. The attitudes of others were a significant barrier for people with intellectual disability. Research found that many staff and families believed that people with intellectual disability didn't have the ability to vote or shouldn't vote. Others held risk-averse assumptions and worried about undue influence of others on people's voting behaviour. And finally, there are still legal barriers to vote for people with intellectual disability in many countries, including in Australia. But to sum up, I will say that there are big gaps in this body of applied research, particularly in relation to the Australian context. Hopefully these will be filled, but there are other forms of valuable knowledge that exist. There are other bodies of literature that have addressed the Australian context in the philosophy and legal disciplines, for example. There is also a lot of valuable knowledge among communities of practitioners, activists, advocates, and most importantly, people with intellectual disability themselves. I have great pleasure in introducing to you Sharon Kensel. She is the Training Officer at Advocacy for Inclusion. In her role as training officer, she has been instrumental in developing best practice, including information guides for people with a disability that have been recognised nationally. 
Advocacy for Inclusion is an independent, non-government organisation. In 2016, we officially became a disabled people's organisation, with the majority of our staff, members and board having a disability. Advocacy for Inclusion provides individual, self-advocacy and systemic advocacy for people with disabilities. We do not ask for proof of disability. It is all about self-identification. We work within a human rights framework that acknowledges the CRPD and we are signed on to the ACT Human Rights Act. The Advocacy for Inclusion Voting Kit was developed in 2013 following consultation with our self-advocacy network and answers many of the questions that they had raised about their right to vote. We discovered that some self-advocates had taken their name off the electoral roll because they didn't understand voting. Others had never bothered to be enrolled because they found it too confusing. Some didn't even know they had the right to vote. The aim of the kit was to assist voters to get out there and to participate. As Christina Ryan, our CEO, points out, all Australian citizens have the right to vote, but people with disabilities don't always feel confident in exercising that right. The voting kit was designed in plain English to help people understand voting. It is designed to help the voter identify what their key issues are and it helps access candidate and party positions and, of course, information on how to actually go and vote. All these things are needed to be able to make an informed choice. The kit is broken down into manageable pieces of information. The four key areas are Voting Sheet 1, what is important to you, which also covers why you should vote. Voting Sheet 2, who can you vote for? Voting Sheet 3, deciding who to vote for. Voting Sheet 4, go and vote, the how-to section that actually includes pictures of the voting cards. Our experience facilitating self-advocacy groups is that people can become easily overwhelmed and confused by a lot of information all at once. By breaking things down into separate key areas, people are then able to take away information and process it, be able to ask questions, and then move on to the next one. It is important to revisit the information as well. So discussion about voting and politics happens regularly within our self-advocacy groups. As with the voting kit and other training material we design and use, we have basic foundations we stick to. All our work is carried out using a human rights framework and acknowledges the Convention of Rights for People with Disabilities. In this case, Human Right Article 21 and CRPD Article 29. To effectively self-advocate, knowing our rights and how to use them is important. We have found that to be able to effectively self-advocate in the long term, it requires an ongoing process of support, learning skills and practising them. Advocacy for Inclusion provides this support through self-advocacy groups and individual self-advocacy training. Self-advocacy is a key tool in self-determination. We all make mistakes in life, no matter if we have a disability or not. Being able to make an informed decision and then making a choice is important. This takes into account dignity of risk and supported decision-making. The voting kit supports this process. We have also developed a supported decision-making app, a world first, that could also be used to help make decisions around voting. Last year, Canberra had local elections as well as the federal election. Our IT stats showed that our voting kit was viewed over 2,000 times in this period. Further feedback that our consumers provided 
was that when using the internet to find information, they required hands-on support. Many of our consumers do not have access to the internet and would prefer information being given face-to-face and in written format so that they can go over it in their own time. Many of the key words, for example, candidates or policy, needed further explanation. Our self-advocacy groups give the opportunity for this to happen face-to-face. There was a recent release of an Easy English Voting Guide put out by the ACT Electoral Commission. We were contacted and provided feedback as well. It's a great resource. When recently asked about views on voting, one of our self-advocates made the important point, everyone's vote is equal, no matter who you are. If you're interested in looking at our voting kit, you can find a link to it on our website, www.advocacyforinclusion.org. There's also a link there to the supported decision-making app. The next speaker is Sue Lang, who is the Manager of Communication, Education and Research Branch with the Victorian Electoral Commission. Her role at VEC is about major public awareness campaigns. She's aiming to get 4.4 million people to participate in electoral event every two years. A key aspect of Sue's role is to focus on the 20% of electors who face barriers to enrolling and voting. At the VEC we have an obligation to make sure everyone's equal at the ballot box. And we try to hardwire this into our operations via our disability action plan. And one of our key objectives is to develop partnerships to facilitate improved access to enrolment voting. Another is to improve accessibility and clarity of information on enrolling and voting. And a third key one in particular around the topics that I am talking to today is to provide for more Victorians to have a secret and independent vote. Our Voters Voice project is a free app suitable for iPads to facilitate and normalise the voting experience for those with complex communication difficulties, many of whom also have a level of intellectual impairment. So we consulted with end users, disability agencies, and gathered as much information we could at the outset of the project to understand what are the sorts of barriers, what are the sorts of issues, and what are the sorts of things that we need to factor into creating an app that people could use on their own BYO technology, as we call it. And we had advice from uh, SCOPE, an organisation that works with people with multiple disabilities, and they suggested an iPad basis from which to start, given that this was very much a trial process. So we looked at provision of electoral information in various formats, because obviously there's a wide variety and spectrum of people with varying levels of intellectual impairment and communication uh, skills and abilities. So what we ended up with was an app that people could download that would could provide information on the enrolling and voting process and that was provided in both easy English format with some pictographs and very plain English. Then we had just a simple plain English section and that's suitable for people who may have had a stroke for instance and have more expressive difficulties than receptive difficulties. There's also a section about Uh, what voters who are voting for the first time can expect. So, for instance, they might be very, if they have anxiety issues, they might be very nervous about what the whole process of voting at a voting centre includes. So what can they expect 
What do they need to actually back it up? What do they need to think about and understand before they go to vote? So there's that information collection, thinking about how do I get information on the candidates? How do I make a decision about who I'm voting for? Then getting to the voting centre, working through the, the morass of people handing out how to vote material and actually what they do in the voting centre. Then there's the communication board, which is perhaps the most important aspect of the Voters Voice app. And that actually provides the facility for a person to pre-code, particularly if they have expressive difficulties, communication difficulties. So they can put their name and address into that app, which will pre-play that when they're in a voting centre, when they're asked for their name, their address, and whether they voted previously in that election. They can also pre-prepare pre that information earlier, or they can uh, put in other free text questions if they have a basic level of literacy. But certainly there is an expectation there may be some level of carer or support person assistance with that. Anyone can use it. Nobody would be challenged at a voting centre if their name is on the roll and they rocked up with our Voters Voice app on an iPad and asked to get ballot papers. The second program that I did refer to today is our partnership with Carers Victoria, which is to increase carers' knowledge of electoral processes with a view to increasing participation of the people that they care for and how to assist a person with disabilities when they get to a voting centre. A common misunderstanding is that voting is secret and that only the person who is voting can go to the voting booth and fill out the ballot paper when, in fact, a friend, carer, relative, or indeed an election official can go and help a person fill out a ballot paper if they're not able to do it themselves. Carers Victoria offered us frontline access to carer support groups and in fact have a network of some 65,000 carers across Victoria. So from an accessibility point of view, that partnership was really important. They also helped us with content development. We sent out surveys to carers beforehand and they helped us organise a couple of focus groups so that we could understand what the concerns and also base level of knowledge of the carers before and after information sessions. So we could get a clear view of what some of the issues were, what some of the misconceptions were that we had to try and overcome. And in fact, overall, they ended up running 33 sessions for us just prior to the 2016 council elections in Victoria. And that encompassed provision of information to some 440 odd carers. There is, of course, a limitation with that program, similar to what we have with Voters Voice, that nothing is a panacea for all and that you just have to basically try to do your best. There's very much a need to balance supported decision-making with information about the electoral process. I'd like to introduce Daniel Layton. He is the CEO of Inclusion Melbourne, a disability support provider that focuses on supporting people's welcome into community and ensuring human rights. Inclusion Melbourne is fundamentally a rights-based organisation and we were founded in 1948 by a group of families who had been told to place their children at an institution and to leave them and to never return. And these families felt that that was absolutely unacceptable to them. And so they began the long, hard slog of considering what might need to exist and what supports they might need to have and their children might need to have as their children grew up. And that is the history of Inclusion Melbourne. 
with a history beginning like that, with a group of families who had the foresight to say, we want to do something different, we don't want to take the easy road, we want to do what is right, the organisation has continued to be at the forefront of a whole series of waves of change and innovation that has happened since 1948. And I guess the most significant and relevant to this is the story of Doug Pentland. And Doug Pentland, some listeners will recall, was a man who was central to the story of self-advocacy here in Victoria. He had been a resident in an institution and he was championing for his own rights, was actually holding a placard out the front talking about institutions being shut down and the right to move out and live in the community. That footage appeared on the TV news one night and it happened to have been seen by a distant cousin who then got in contact and Doug actually moved out the institution much earlier than the formal process of deinstitutionalisation began. And so with Doug living now semi-independently and supported living in Melbourne, he obviously needed a service to attend because that was the requirement of the government of the day and he became a client of Gorth Villa, which is now known as Inclusion Melbourne. But he'd only been a client for a couple of years before Inclusion Melbourne supported Doug to stop being a client and to actually become one of the founders of Reinforce. And so we've always been thinking about people with an intellectual disability and thinking about their rights and thinking about how to honour people and how people with an intellectual disability can have purpose and meaning. And so from the 1980s, Inclusion Melbourne then began to look at what a day service might look like. And in 1990, it agreed, the board agreed, to go down a pathway to say, we actually want to close our centre. We want to support all the people we work with to be able to be included in their own communities, to engage in the activities and opportunities of their choice, and have the opportunity to make friends and be a part of the community and to be able to contribute to their local community. The organisation began this journey in 1990, and by 2005, was ready to close the centre. And in fact, in 2006, it did sell its building and it refitted another building as officers for its staff who would then be working with people personally in the community. And so two key items really came up to get us thinking about how we were supporting people to be able to vote and why there was more work required rather than just at the individual level. And the first one was supporting a person to enrol to vote and who had voted in a, in a couple of state elections. And one of our support coordinators discovered that the person we were working with ended up getting a fine for not voting in a state election. And the rationale for this was that it wasn't the job of the residential provider to help the person to go and vote. And our support coordinator had even contacted a couple of the local candidates to see if they could get a volunteer to assist this person to get to the polling booth on election day, and no one was willing to help. You know, the, the irony was that one of the candidates we contacted missed out on getting a vote. And so that was a real concern to us, that how could people be truly included, as the state plan was calling for, if no one was really looking at people's right to be able to vote or to think meaningfully about how to support people to vote. And then the second thing that happened was the discussion that was taking place at the time, and at this point we're talking around 2012, 
2011-2012 around the potential of an NDIS, which we knew that the majority of participants in the scheme, as is the case now, would have an intellectual or developmental disability. And yet there were no serious voices at the table to be able to, to talk about what it was that a person with an intellectual disability would be seeking. So we began our initial work in 2012-2013. And when we started to think about this problem, and we were speaking before the federal election in 2014, one of the first things we recognised was that intelligence is in no way correlated with the ability of a moral compass and moral development. And the second key factor that really stuck in our mind was the recognition that a person with an intellectual disability, the life of a person with an intellectual disability and the opportunities available to a person with an intellectual disability are far more in the hands of government than the average citizen in Australia. For you or I, tax rates can go up or down by a couple of percent and it can be a small bonus or a minor inconvenience. But for a person with an intellectual disability, on the whole, their lives are dictated by services and offerings provided by government. Issues such as the level of income support provided, the amount of housing that is made available, whether through public housing and the rights to priority access to that public housing, or the ability and availability to gain access to supported living, as well as talking about the level and the amount and the type of supports that are available to support people with activities of daily living. These are all serious questions for a person with an intellectual disability. And over the past two federal elections, we've seen a number of very tight races in quite a number of electorates. And if we refer to the most recent election, the government only has a one seat majority. And so what effect would hundreds of thousands of people with an intellectual disability, who we surmise currently don't vote, what effect would they have had on this election or the election prior to the most recent election if they had been supported to vote. The rationale became very clear to us and it returns back to the story of Doug Pentland, uh, whose photo I keep in my office and whose quote sits under the photo and says our voices should be heard and not denied. What is it that Inclusion Melbourne could do to ensure that the voices of people would be heard and not denied? So our manager of the Inclusion Design Lab, Nathan Despot, uh, had the good fortune uh, and was supported by the organisation to be able to undertake a study tour and he visited a number of best practice sites around the world and from that was able to conceptualise and articulate a model of support to be able to support people with intellectual disability to be able to vote. We also recognise that technology provides great opportunities and brings the opportunity to vote within the realms of a possibility for many people we work with. Now, this is really the beginning of a journey for us, but we know that it's a journey that is worth taking, and we know that we have an end point in mind that we can achieve. So we'd like you to join with us and get involved in this campaign. I'd like to introduce Dr. Jane Tracy, who is talking about supporting her son, Nick, a person with developmental disabilities to vote. Jane is a parent and also a medical practitioner and senior lecturer 
currently working with the Centre for Developmental Disabilities, Health Victoria. My son Nick is a terrific young man, now 32, who enjoys being part of his community, meeting people, going to the gym, trying new restaurants, going to movies and stage shows and events at the museum. He also has multiple and severe disabilities, including intellectual disability and cerebral palsy, and so he's profoundly affected by changes in government priorities and policy. But prior to 2016, he hadn't voted. We really hadn't thought that that was something that Nick could do. As the 2016 Australian election approached, we were encouraged by Inclusion Melbourne to consider assisting Nick to enrol to vote, to enable his voice to be heard and counted. We gave it a lot of thought but in the end decided to do so and started to discuss the role of government and the importance of voting with Nick. Nick has severe communication difficulties and so it was sometimes difficult to be sure just how much he understood. But we repeated the information as required and particularly whenever he was exposed to the advertising and promotion about the upcoming election. When we talked to Nick about the upcoming election, we concentrated on the three main parties and talked about what they wanted to do, particularly in relation to people with disabilities. Then we went along to a pre-polling station and got how-to-vote cards from those three parties. We talked about how everyone wanted us to put them as number one, but that it was our choice. On the day of the election, we waited in the queue. It wasn't a long wait, and it was a really great way to reinforce the fact that everyone in Australia was doing this together. The AEC officials were really helpful, both to Nick and to my daughter and myself, who were assisting him. They allowed us to go with Nick into the booth to support him. Nick was very proud to have voted, like the rest of his family, and was part of the conversation about the results of the election in a way he could never have been if he hadn't been an active participant in the process. I'd like to introduce Nathan Despot. Nathan is the manager of the Inclusion Design Lab at Inclusion Melbourne. His work has involved research and development and piloting projects in areas as diverse as dental health, choice and decision-making, advocacy for inclusive voting and promoting inclusive faith communities. Uh, Inclusion Melbourne's original engagement with um, voting and, and political citizenship wasn't really through a, a human rights approach or through a legal strategy. It was really um, through our, our model of support. We support people with intellectual disability to live included lives in the local community. And things as controversial as sex, politics or religion don't really sit outside our scope of, of practice. Good person-centred practice applies to all um, domains of life. It was only when we began to look at some of the um, practical problems people were having in voting that we, be, we realised that you know, there was a, an issue here to be investigated. Um, one of our support coordinators at Inclusion Melbourne made the comment that even some of the, the mundane practicalities, practicalities of voting, such as organising a five-minute drive to the polling station on voting day once a year, um, sometimes proved to be a logistical impossibility for some of the support organisations that we engage with. Uh, and I guess we realised that it, you know voting and political citizenship wasn't really a priority for some of those organisations. Um, but we feel that um, help assisting someone to, to vote should be the same as assisting someone to go to the dentist or going to a rock concert or engaging in a faith community. Um, it really should be part of practice. 
Um, and again, we saw that a lot of citizen, uh, definitions of citizenship in the literature uh, excluded political citizenship. And we thought that was quite concerning. Sometimes definitions of citizenship um, would incorporate very good definitions of social and community inclusion, but it wasn't really what we would consider to be a definition of citizenship. Um, and I guess what we wanted to do was develop a sense of, you know, what is the pathway for a person with intellectual disability on that road to, um, to voting? And we began to look at, I guess, some of the other ways that people with intellectual disability enrol and prepare and then attend an episode of political citizenship. And we found that self-advocacy and advisory groups were a good example of that. And found that, again, you know, these self-advocacy groups um, worked, worked best um, and advisory groups worked best when um, good, inclusive, person-centred practice such as active support was applied. Um, in those in those contexts, and I guess the next thing that struck us in our work was the legal environment in Australia, um, and the fact that um, in Australia we have a number of laws that prevent people from intellectual disability or seem to prevent people with intellectual disability from voting. Um, we have the Commonwealth Electoral Act, which fairly clearly um, you know excludes people who don't have a sound mind, as the language goes. And we see in Section 93.8a of the Australian Commonwealth Electoral Act 1918, um, and also in the Victorian Constitution, where this um, statement is echoed in Section 48.2d, that people with intellectual disability are essentially excluded from voting if they can't understand the nature or significance of voting. Uh, and the term used is an unsound mind. Um, and that a, a person with intellectual disability can be removed from the role, indeed anyone can, if a medical practitioner certifies that the elector doesn't have a sound mind. Um, or, and then if a third party completes the removal of elector's name from role form, they can um, state that they don't believe the person has a sound mind, then this can result in the person being removed from the role. However, if, if that doesn't happen, if the, if the form isn't completed and no one protests to a person being enrolled, then people with intellectual disability can actually vote and, and they, they really aren't hindered. The fact that in the UK there's a you know, robust piece of legislation, the Mental Capacity Act, which separates mental and legal capacity, um, a lot of the campaigns that we visited in the United Kingdom clearly indicated that um, for people who had wanted to vote and been supported to vote, um, that act didn't really make much of a difference to them because they had people to support them um, and there were techniques that were used to help people vote. What we've really come to is that even though there are laws in Australia that appear to prevent people from voting, the fact is we have more than enough in terms of practice to be able to support people to vote. Um, just a note on the United Nations Conventions on the Rights of Persons with Disability. Things we noticed is that Article 29 is the, the article that specifically speaks about voting. However, Articles 3, 4, 5, 8, 9, 12, 21 and 30, and um, listeners are able to, to, to uh, look those up um, themselves, those preceding articles really do actually lay the foundation. And in fact, if you removed Article 29, there would be more than enough in the rest of the convention, whether it be in terms of raising awareness of voting rights, um, creating accessible polling stations, uh, separating legal and mental capacity, and also accessing information about politics, but also information about uh, candidates, political parties, political ideology, and elections. One of the, the great things of being able to, to travel overseas and view some of the, the best... Um, election campaigns for people with intellectual disability was being able to um, 
to, I guess, meet with some of the advocacy groups and self-advocacy groups that had supported these campaigns um, and, and to realise that there really are some amazing campaigns out there. However, they're not really being um, written up in literature. Just to summarise some of these um, campaigns, um, there's a, a campaign in, in Sweden uh, which is run by an organisation um, that is, I guess, a cross between a vocational education organisation and a community neighbourhood house, I guess. Um, it's a, a model called the Studi Verbundet, and the organisation I visited was the Studi Verbundet Vuxenskolen, where um, the MITVOL, or the My Vote campaign, saw intellectual disability join small study groups to learn about politics and political information. We also visited um, the Every Vote Counts campaign in the United Kingdom, um, which saw um, teams of journalists with intellectual disability interview uh, politicians uh, on YouTube videos in easy English conversations, if you like, uh, and also produce material that was essentially how to vote material that went into the ins and outs of politically sensitive information in easy English. And this is also supported by the Easy News campaign, which is a, a long-running um, easy English newspaper if you like, and the the people who, who write the articles are journalists with intellectual disability who have been trained by media organisations such as the BBC. And this was a very effective way of, of sort of bridging the gap that people experience when they enrol to vote but don't know how to access information and learn about politics. To conclude, one of the, um, the outcomes of this work that Inclusion Melbourne's been doing has been to develop um, a taxonomy, a proposal of a pathway to understand what the journey looks like for a person with intellectual disability who wants to a citizenship. I guess it's a five-step pathway. Step one is developing self-awareness of political citizenship and agency. And, and this doesn't just mean agency of I want to change the way my bus timetable runs, but it also means it's relevant for people who have never had a chance to choose whether they want to change the temperature of their shower every morning. Um, and that sort of leads to this... Un uh, the next step, step two, which is the understanding of, of politics and the political environment that the person is in, which leads to step three, which is understanding how to enrol to vote, which can be quite a complex step if a person has a, a strong perception of risk um, and fear and perhaps a you know, cause for concern in Australia that if you enrol to vote but your support systems fall apart, then in the future you may get a fine. So it's about allaying those fears and then being assisted to enrol to vote. Step four involves um, having adequate exposure and access to materials that allow um, people with intellectual disability to determine their voting preferences, um, which you know, electoral commissions are not actually able to do because they're bound from presenting partial political information. And then the fifth step is actually accessing the, the ballot box and, and using a voting paper or a ballot paper. And the Victorian Electoral Commission has produced some amazing material and there's also some fabulous examples of, of apps and uh, modified voting papers from around the world that are available. But the most important thing to point out is, to, is that you know, the, the UNCRPD um, very clearly states that lack of accessibility at the polling station should not be a barrier. Um, to, to political citizenship. So it would be great in the future to see 
um, new technology being used and, and new systems. Um, one um, goal, perhaps, would be to have people with intellectual disability being supported by a circle of support or a learning group or family members who can sign a statutory declaration or some other kind of arrangement um, that they can bring with them to the, to the polling station and that can be respected. And so, you know, the person with intellectual disability is, is there to experience being at the polling station but has pre-prepared their responses and their, um, their voting selection. And, and these are some of the ideas that we'd like to see actioned in the future. I guess the last point um, is to note that uh, people with intellectual disability do have the right um, to have, have an influence in the way the society functions, not just in areas of disability policy, um, but also in other areas of life, such as industrial relations or the environment or climate change or foreign media content ownership, and, and that we believe that just because a person may not appear to have the cognitive skills that other people have, it doesn't mean that they can't have a well-defined value system and, and can't be engaged as political citizens. Thanks for listening today. We hope you enjoyed it. I'd like to thank our partners, Inclusion Melbourne, Living with a Disability Research Centre Melbourne and Australasian Society for Intellectual Disability. Thank you to the producers, Sophia Tipping, Buffy Gorilla and Alice Nicholas. You can find the PowerPoints from the seminar on the ACID website. Our next podcast will be by Dr Patsy Frawley from Deakin University. She will be talking on working together to respond to violence and abuse. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. This is Hilary Johnson from the Victorian Committee.